Hello and welcome to Deadline Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. I am a film uh, a critic here, a film writer, and an associate editor at Deadline Hollywood. Thank you again for joining me on the second outing uh, for the podcast. Uh, scene to Scene is, you know, I would say it's an annex of the New Hollywood podcast. We are continuing the legacy that New Hollywood podcast has established while adding on some different uh, components and flavors that you're going to get to see uh, as the season goes on. Today, I have a very special episode where we are talking to film critics who are freelancers who are in the business and they're gonna share some of their negative and positive experiences with us. I have a really diverse group of people and um, they're gonna tell you a little bit about themselves. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Spotify and leave us a review if you like it, whatever you like, whatever you don't like, not a problem. Uh, We're always open to knowing how we can improve. So. Uh, with that, I'm going to get to the panelist here. So, uh, going in the order that I'm seeing everybody uh, right now on my screen, because even though you're listening to audio, we are jamming on Zoom right now. So I'm going to go uh, to my left and let Carolyn go first. I want you to introduce yourself. Tell us where you're at, what you do, where you're from. Give us give us what we need to know. Hi, everyone. I am Carolyn Hines. I am a freelance film culture critic, journalist, podcaster, and YouTuber. I'm originally from Barbados, but I now live in Toronto. So I'm an immigrant. I've been living here 12 years. And I've been a film critic for going on six years now. I started in 20, early 2017. So um, it's been a wild ride, rewarding with its own pitfalls, um, as we'll get into it later today. But I'm happy that Val invited me to join this podcast and to talk about the um, industry and the ups and downs of it. All right, next, uh, I'm going to go with uh, Nguyen. Introduce yourself, give us your full name, and let us know who you are and what you do. All right, thank you, Valerie. So uh, my name is uh, Nguyen Le. I'm, I was born in Vietnam, but then my second home is Houston, Texas. Uh, I'm just like Caroline. <laughs> I'm a freelance uh, film writer, uh, culture critic, and uh, sometimes a, you know, uh, amateur photographer and amateur cook as well. I don't know. I don't know about that cooking part really. But anyway, uh, I'm writing for a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of outlets. You may have uh, come across them, for example, like Jump Cut Online, uh, Slash Film, Pace Magazine, Fangoria, Awards Watch, so on and so forth. But um, even even though even though some would say that, you know, I'm I'm pretty like "Quote unquote," uh, well established already. I'm. I. I think I'm always a learner. So it's. Uh, so it's very happy to be here in the room with a whole lot of people whose writings uh, I admire as well. So, thank you, Valerie, for you know gathering us all here today. Of course, of course, uh, Shay. Oseo Nagache Vassar Dawado. Hello, everyone. My name is Shay Vassar. I am a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. I'm a writer. Uh, Currently, I've been saying I'm a retired film critic because I'm kind of stepping away from this world. Uh, However, I love being here with people that I admire so much. Uh, Some of my writing can be found at Roger Ebert, Film School Rejects, Slate, uh, and a couple of others. But uh, yeah, Thanks, Val, for having us here today, and I'm excited to talk. Awesome. Next, we got Diego. Hi, everyone. So I'm Diego Andalus. I'm a freelance film critic, um, podcaster, and awards editor for Discussing Film as well. I currently reside in Miami. I've been writing for a few years now, and you can find my writing on Discussing Film, Awards Watch, The Film Stage, Film Inquiry, and a couple of other places. And last, but certainly not least, Erica. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Erica Hardison. I'm a culture critic, 
Um, you can see my writing has been in Flickr and Myth, USA Today, uh, HuffPost, Book Riot, and a, num and a number of other outlets. Um, I, you know, do a lot of cons, interview a lot of, of creatives. So I see a lot of things. I, I can't wait to uh, share my experience with y'all and talk about the good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank all of you. I'm thanking all of you for, for being here. And I know this can be sort of a tough topic, but the first question uh, I want to get into uh, really briefly is what made you want to do this, want to be a culture critic or write about film? Just really briefly, let me know what you think. And anybody can sort of go first. Um, I guess I'll go first. Um, for me, I've always loved talking about film and I'm also a very curious person and I can be um, quite analytical. Like I like looking at things and like kind of like taking them apart and disseminating things that I can get from the stories, the characters and even the sets. And I, I, I got, when I say curious, I also just like lear learning how people's minds work and like for, especially for film creatives and just like the whole idea of putting a film together from scratch is very complex and I just love learning from creatives um, how they go about crafting a film and building something from nothing and um, it's like in any working organism I see films as a working organism so I just want to know how the body of the films work so that's one of the reasons I got into film criticism and also I'm a very opinionated person as anyone who follows me on Twitter and anyone who knows me I'm very opinionated and I just like be able to share my thoughts about films and the culture of film um, it, it, to, to readers or, or listeners, um, anyone who listens to my podcast and YouTube channels. Um, I just like be able to share a different perspective as well. So that's the majority of it. I mean, I can tell you like for me, <clears throat> I started writing back really back in 2013 when I was still in the military because I was like bored and I had a lot to say. Like, I even remember my first film review. It was for Riddick. It was for the third movie in the Chronicles of Riddick series. And I tore that film apart. Like, <laughs> it, it, I have not watched it since then. But, you know, back then it was a hobby. I my plan was to go into cybersecurity and be an IT professional. Like I just was writing for fun and then it sort of became this like thing. And it, I didn't start really getting serious about it until, like I had some, some good runs between 2014 and 2016 where I had written for The Nerdist and I had written for IGN and I had written for a couple of other places, but things really got serious when I, uh, joined uh, as a staff writer at Black Girl Nerds where I met Carolyn. And that's when I really started to hone my craft as to what my film reviews would look like and, and interviews and celebrities and stuff like that. That's when I really got serious. Uh, things actually picked up for me in 2019. And then that's, you know, that's what led me to this point and uh, working at deadline. I just love movies. I always have. I, I remember I was chatting with my father recently and he used to take me to the movies all the time. And that was my sort of getaway drug, so to speak. And now I'm writing about it. All right. Who's next? Um, I'll, I'll go next. <clears throat> so um, I, I want to, I want to be here because, well, it, it well, it's sort of a, it's sort of a very like a uh, drama. Uh, it's very much like a drama, very adaptable as well. So uh, screenwriters, aspiring screenwriters, if you're in here, if you're listening, anyway, <laughs> um, it's at first I set out to be a, uh, you know, I want, I want to be a film director because I love uh, the works of people that I've seen, for example, like, Hayao Miyazaki or Steven Spielberg or um, Brad Bird, so on and so forth. But um, due to certain complex financial circumstances, I had to, well, I had the long talk with my parents as well, who wanted me to pursue something more 
culturally relevant as in you know being a, an accountant or being a doctor or so on and so forth but mm, I had a talk with them and they realized that one it seems like film is the only good is the only thing that I can talk about and second is that this passion uh, for film of mine cannot be dissuaded anytime soon so a whole lot of uh, long talks and discussions later on and well we all decided that maybe just pare down my dream a little bit just so that I can still be close to the film industry but not to a point where uh, a, a career where education might be too costly for example like filmmaking school it's not cheap so that with the powers of those two combined here I am writing about film so, and uh, I decided to I decided to be in here as well. It's just that not not only because of the passion for films that I mentioned earlier, but also because it seems like I don't see anyone who looks like me or has an has a name that's kind of like me, as in like another Vietnamese an, or another critic of Vietnamese descent in the field. Or there are just too few of people who are like me in the field. And so, well, to me, it seems like, um, well, that's a good point to start, as in just step in and, you know, and be, be the change that you want to see, that kind of mentality. So here I am. I think, um, you know, <clears throat> represent, representation is important, and we're going to get into that as far as the film critic space is concerned, but you bring up a really good point about you don't see your you don't see anyone like you in the business. So you create that sort of niche, you know, for yourself. So um film similarly to everyone else that's talked has always been my thing. Um, there's been a resurgence of people finding out who Gene Kelly is. And I think that's cute. But in fourth grade, I remember getting made fun of when I said that was my celebrity crush. So, you know, I've always really been drawn to the classics. Um, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So we would drive to the library and my mom would check out the max amount of VHSs. And that was how I started learning about movies and character development and all of that. So fast forward to 2016, I moved to New York City to be a comedy writer. And uh, I thought it was really easy. Broad City made it seem kind of easy. It is not easy. And so I answered a Craigslist ad that was like, hey, I need a film critic. And I was like, cool, I know about movies. And all of a sudden I was going to uh, press conferences and screenings and it was for a site that no longer exists and I don't even remember what it was called and it didn't pay but it kind of got me into that world. I decided to go back to school at Hunter College in, in film because I was like I'm gonna do this for the rest of my life and as we'll probably dive into um, I've since kind of decided that my original goal to be a comedy writer television writer is more my up my alley, but it's also hard to get away from this business when you have found the incredible people, because at first you don't find those incredible people and you're kind of found with people who are gatekeeping the big movies or certain publications. However, like it's hard to break away when there is like some really dynamite people. So uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've always just been a huge fan of movies, movie watching, movie writing. Um, like since I can remember, I used to actually just in like newspapers or on uh, online, I would always be reading the film criticism section. Like just anything to do with film and, and cinema has always been up my alley. And then, I mean, I've always written here and there for fun. I used to always be writing on the IMDb forums. I've always, I've used Letterboxd since it's first started. Um, but during the pandemic, like just when it started, I realized like, okay, I have a lot of time on my hands and I can't really get out there and make films, which is something I love to do as well. Um, and I said, okay, what if I actually look into how to potentially start writing about, about films and about like, just like all these technical components. And so I kind of just did some research, started looking into like these indie publications and I actually saw an ad or someone who I followed on Letterboxd posted, I have a blog. Um, I'm starting up. Do you guys 
want to write for me, just let me know. And that was actually Clapper. And so that was my first publication that I wrote for. So that was quite a great experience. And ever since then, I mean, the editor-in-chief there, like Jack Sharp, like I credit him with everything because he was the one who really shaped me, taught me how to like write in this way, uh, gave me all the skills and all these tips and tricks to succeed. Um, and ever since then, I've just, I guess, been climbing the ladder, just getting really involved in anything I can, networking, reaching out to other individuals, um, starting a Twitter account and being active on there. And since then, it's just, it's just been a dream. Obviously with some hardships as well, but we'll get into that later okay <laughs> well I've been a journalist um since about 2015 um I've always been working in media different aspects of media social media PR um I you know for transparency reasons I've only um reviewed a handful of film I, I cover mostly TV um shows um more than film However, I, I, there are definitely some things I've noticed from the different uh, uh, mediums. Um, I started in just regular entertainment. I was PR. I also was working at a network. And I've also, I've always been, you know, excited about being a reporter. But then, you know, working in media, you figure what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And um, uh, yeah, I, I found certain things that was not, um healthy to be the best writer and produce the best content for me and I found what does work for me and yeah I've just been you know staying in my lane so let's let's get into it Erica I'm actually curious to know what are some of those differences that you noticed between like are you saying you notice the difference between those who cover film and those who cover tv or the difference in oh. access or oh yes both of them actually I feel like um, film is a little bit more, I guess, bougie, say to speak. You know, I feel like the PR people for film are very particular about who they pitch um, regarding specific projects. With TV, you know, they're not as picky about the writers as more they are about the publication you know if they get a national hit they're just happy to get a national hit with a decent review with a tv show right because even if like people hate the show people there's going to be a large some people that's still going to watch it regardless right they just really want you know some good clips to keep moving on their press but with film I feel like you know they have they hone in on specific writers especially writers that they have um, a really close connection to that they can like drop, you know, tidbits about things to kind of like wrap up their own PR for a particular movie. Um, and I, I don't have that type of access, you know, so I, the films I have um, reviewed are usually like, you know, prime video movies or really uh, indie films that are, you know, um, trying to, they're usually in smaller fests before they get to Sundance. So, but yeah, I have never had the opportunity to like um, uh, write or get a screener for like a, you know, major film that's coming out that's gonna be like either blockbusters or contend for the Oscars. I've, I've, I don't have that prestige yet. So let's, let's talk about the, this bougie, as Erica said, the bougie-ness of the film side or of either side or whether you review television or film or whatever um and how the gatekeeping as Shay had mentioned earlier and how that has created challenges or barriers for you uh in accomplishing tasks and doing your job I mean, I'd say one broader thing that I would like to mention is just the fact that so much of this industry is centered around LA and New York. And so normally those locations have tons of screenings. You can have like three, four rounds of different tiers of press um, watching these films and getting to cover them before the embargo. And then even in major cities like Chicago or Miami, like as I've experienced here, um, you find that the screenings are either very limited, there's only one or two at most, a lot of them are actually after either social embargoes or even after review embargoes sometimes, 
And when you're trying to go out there and pitch to publications, going out there trying to maybe like grow your account or, or your name, you find a lot of barriers in that sense because the films and the screenings that you can cover and that publications want to be covered are normally only given to you after the embargo lifts and after just an insane amount of critics in New York and LA have already watched them and have already covered them. And so I found that I think one of the main things is just how deeply the industry is centered in those two places, which kind of cuts off everyone who is not in New York and LA out of the map. And like, even there's been a lot of major films this year that have actually not even screened for press outside of New York and LA. And I found myself just oh, wishing I could cover it, but not really having an option. Um, but yeah, again, like I, I've even seen some pretty prominent voices being like, I'm considering moving to New York and LA or actually being forced now to move to New York and LA to continue pursuing uh, a career in this industry because of how limiting it's, it's starting to get. So you are in another country completely. You're, you're in Canada, you're in Toronto. And I know you've had some issues with, with access and, and, and everything like that. So to Diego's point, can you talk a little bit more about that and some of the challenges you've had uh, with, um, with gaining access? Um, yeah, it's, it's very similar to um, Americans who are outside of the LA and the New York market, because when I first started out writing, I did start out writing particularly with regards to TV shows. Like, as you mentioned, me and you uh, met when we were first writing for BGM, Black Girl Nerds, and I, a lot of my coverage was um, TV shows. And it was a bit easier for me to get access for TV shows because, like, as Erica says, the publicists are more likely to send you links. Um, because they just want as much eyes and as much coverage for TV shows as possible. But then when I started to transition, even while I was with BJ, even while I started to transition to covering films more often, I started to notice that it, is, it was harder to get um, links because you'd be like, oh, we're not really sending links to Toronto. And then once I made a permanent switch over to, um, to film, and that would have been around um, late 2018, that's when it was like, yeah, I can see the whole gate. It, I could see the gatekeeping before because, you know, like, you know, we, BJ was, and this was in a story for BJ, and BJ is predominantly Black women writing, and there was still this struggle, and then, like, there's a whole drama, like, Val knows with the leader, and there, that created a problem with access, too, but when I started working on my own, I, that's when I saw, yeah, even in Toronto, I, as one of the very few, I think I'm probably one of two Black women film critics in, in Canada. The other one, I believe, is Sarah Tai. And um, getting access is extremely difficult because we, I get publicists telling me, oh, we're not providing links for, uh, for Toronto, you know? And or I wouldn't get invitations to screenings. Like, they'd be doing film screenings here. And because I'm not a member of the Toronto Film Critics Association, I didn't, I wouldn't get anything. So then that's when I started writing mainly for um, American outlets. That's when I started writing as freelance for things like Observer, Adam Tickets, and I used to write for Coming Soon. And that's how I would get access because those were recognized quote unquote outlets. But if it was writing for smaller, when I started writing for, um, but why though, that's when I started creating my podcast, I couldn't get <laughs> links. And even when you're covering for, um, for film festivals, like for the Toronto International Film Festival, for goodness sakes, Toronto International Film Festival. I live in Toronto. I'm a critic in Toronto. I'm covering Toronto Film Festival and I cannot get links for the tip for TIFF. I would be told, oh, the sites, the, the films are either geo-blocked, which I think is absurd in this day and age to have films geo-blocked for an international film festival. And then to be told, oh, we're not providing links to the Toronto market for a film festival taking place in Toronto. That makes absolutely zero cents <laughs> and, it's, and and then when you look at it even though uh, so much films are actually produced in Canada and in, in like Toronto and Vancouver in particular we still get blocked from access from the films and the projects that are made here I think that's utterly ridiculous and like it's so much gatekeeping there's a whole problem of being black being a black woman in this industry and then we have to worry about okay location because there are many women who do not black women who do not live in New York or LA who do still struggle with getting access and so the same thing for me, I'm a black woman living in Toronto and I do still struggle with, with regards to access that way because people think, oh, racism doesn't play into this. It very much does. And so does location. And then me, again, being one of the only two black female film critics, even more problems. Now, um, when 
you know, I've seen you talk on, on, on Twitter a lot about like, you know, how you're an Asian critic and when you try to get access to films, uh, you know, or anything regarding Asian talent, you have trouble doing so. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's a, it's a tale as all as time kind of deal when even though it shouldn't be. Um, there are, uh, I, I, can, I can recite uh, uh, two occasions in the past where this happened is um, when uh, there were two films that uh, came out. Uh, they were Daffy Bloods and The Old Guard. And uh, I really intensely want to cover them because, well, they have a Vietnamese talent on board. It's uh, Veronica Ngo, who, uh, whom I, I guess uh, y'all would know, who made a little appearance, but memorable in The Last Jedi. Or if you are, or if you love Asian cinema, then she was in Fury. Oh yeah, that was her. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Okay, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, the uh, my 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 basic mantra is, if, if you can call it that, is this: if I want to interview somebody or if I want to cover something, that means I really really do, like almost to the degree where you can say hyperbolically, like I would I would kill to cover and interview that because I really want to do that. However. Access to Veronica apparently was much harder than I could ever anticipate because for whatever reasons, when I ask for uh, if, I, if I can have the links to these films and if I can talk to uh, Veronica, I would get ghosted. Or when I try to follow up with them, they said that, um, well, these films are really in demand, so we ran out of links. And Wait, I mean, so they told you that they ran, so they ran out of bandwidth. They ran out of internet. Did they run out of www? Like, I I don't yes. understand when people say, "Oh, we we run out of links." Like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah. So when they say that, I just decided, but like, I just stopped, you know, because I was. Uh, simultaneously speechless and I was like exactly exactly as you said like how can you how can you run out of links how can you run out of worldwide web apparently the web isn't too wide I guess so yeah it's um so it's it's really disheartening because uh well Veronica she is pretty much a of superstar level in my country and obviously well, to have somebody who knows the culture and the language. Um, uh, FYI, I'm bilingual, so so I can so you know I, I know that I can bring some fresh perspective into interviewing her as opposed uh, as opposed to you know uh, publication X Y Z that's based in an Anglophilic country would interview her kind of deal, you know. So it's so it's. Yeah, so it's just uh, to to this day, I would still remember that incident, and I would just still, you know, be reminded of, you know, how 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 small fry of a how small size of a small fry I am here in this uh, in this field, and you know, the fact that to even want to talk to my own people is something that, I'm gonna invent a word here, is something that's gatekeepable, is just ridiculous, seriously, so yeah. I know like, <laughs> like I know if I wasn't at deadline, like I wouldn't get like, I, okay, so like I know before I came to deadline, people were like, oh, you know, I had some access, I would get some things, uh, shout out to A24, shout out to Neon, who like always hooked me up with things and would invite me to things and stuff like that. A couple of other studios, but generally I, I would be shut out of, of a lot of things. But when I came to Deadline, I thought that would change, but it only changed a little bit. I 
still have to reach out and do detective work and find people and ask for things. And um, it's a little bit easier now, but there's still some barriers and gatekeeping, even at the trade level, you know? Um, Shay, I know you haven't had a chance to speak, so I want to hear what you think. Yeah. So for me, I, I am based out of Brooklyn with access to New York, but my big break in this industry was writing about a little film called Parasite. I wrote specifically about the native obsession in the film. And this was where, this was the first time that I was so passionate to write about a native focused piece that I pitched it to over 30 publications, but no one wanted to publish this topic because it was seen as negative to a film that was supposed to be getting all of the positivity from, from everyone on every level. I mean, a critics, uh, you know, audiences. And when I was pitching, it was closer to when the Academy Awards were going to announce their nominees. So this was like much later, but there had been no negative press about this film. And I finally, you know, got it picked up by Zola, who is a um, women of color site that was was interested in it. And they, they're through Medium. And I wrote for that publication. And it was also the most money I've ever made. Um, so it's kind of like, I don't know, buying a lottery ticket on your birthday and winning. Like it was horrible because uh, I've never made that much money again. But the piece really opened me up as a critic and specifically a film critic. But the issue was it opened me up not as just any film critic. It opened me up as only a native film critic. And so from that point on, it was just kind of like I, ha I, I had to struggle with my own like mental idea of if this was a good idea. This was a piece I was very passionate to write about, but then it, it kind of stuck me in a corner where it was like, oh, why do you want to cover any of these other big films when they don't have a native character in it or they don't have a native subplot in it? And so I started reviewing a little bit more television because as you guys mentioned, like it's a little bit easier for some of these bigger publications to write about television when it's not native focus, but then the moment this past year, there was two television shows that were focused around uh, native living here in the North American continent. It was like the only thing that people wanted me to write about, which was okay because I need to pay my bills. But at the same time, like, I don't want to be writing four and five pieces about one television show, like, especially when I have the capacity to write about other things. You know, when I first started out, I specifically wrote about mental health representation and women and horror. And yet trying to get a horror television show or title of any kind, it's almost like people are like, why? You're Shay Vassar. You're the native film critic. Why do you want to write about that? And so my gatekeeping has been very much on the opposite side of what we've just heard about because it's like, yeah, okay, you're Vietnamese. You should talk to Vietnamese, you know, talent and, and filmmakers and screenwriters and like all of that. And for me, that's all anyone wants from me. And so it's, it's frustrating that these are two totally different sides of the same coin, but yet this is what's happening in our industry. And I don't want to say I'm the only Native film critic because that's incorrect. Um, I know that there's at least one other Native film critic who is Rotten Tomatoes certified and writes for Indian Country Today. And there's a couple of others that are coming up that I've met at uh, Sundance last year and at TIFF. But part of me wants to be really honest with them and tell them, don't label yourself a Native film critic because it is the worst thing that happened for my career in this, in this world. And that's why I have, you know, started to break away. And even then with the end of the year list coming out, I had multiple people reach out to me about, do you want to write another thing about wild Indian? And I'm like, oh I've already God. written three pieces. I've been on Carolyn's podcast about it. Like, no, I don't necessarily want to write about wild Indian again. Like I, 
it's there's only so much you can say about one film without it starting to repeat and then I plagiarize myself so it's been it's been a real struggle and then also looking at like my own identity and being like did I like milk my own identity for that one piece I don't know and it's still something that like I've had to come to terms with and I I one of the things that's interesting or that's always been interesting in this in this industry is is how um, there is a a mistaken sense of self-worth uh not self-worth but of worthiness and value um especially you know when it comes to you know various publicists and and, and thinking that you know it is important to go to the highest outlet because they have the biggest reach we really, people want to know what I think. They want to know what you think, Shay. They want to know what Diego thinks. They want to know what Erica thinks and Carolyn and when. They want to know what you guys, like most people want to know what you think about films, not some, you know, white guy who's been in the business for, for 50 years. Now there's nothing wrong with with those writers and the things that they write, but the perspective is different now. You know, a lot of people, when I write my reviews, I write about the film and I address the social commentary. It's just a different, it's just a different time period and people want to hear different voices. But for some reason, there's a disconnect at these, at the levels where we have to connect with publicists and, and things like that. There's just like, just very strange disconnect. Um, if, if, what would, what would you think would be the solution to these issues of, uh, of gatekeeping and uh, not having enough links um, and not having, a, you know, not ha- getting access as a freelancer? And it's, it's not really like it also depends very much on the outlets that you're at, because I know you know, a very prominent cultural critic writer who was writing for a large publication and then got hired elsewhere. Um, That's considered like a pretty fairly big publication, but it was very niche and they couldn't get the same access they used to when they were at the previous publication. And suddenly people don't know your name and, you know, people don't see your emails or, you know, start forgetting. But what, what what do you think is the solution to this problem? Like, it's more than just like, oh, they need to give us access. There has to be another way. And I'm curious to know what you guys think about some solutions that would actually help everybody get on a sort of a, a, a semi-equal playing field when it comes to, to access. Now, to be fair, um, some talents publicists will turn people down and, and that's what happens. But if you're not getting the opportunity to even put in a request, then, you know, that's where the, the damage is done. So I'm curious to know what you, what you guys think the solution to this problem is. Well, I've, I've worked in the PR side of it, right? So I think one of the issues is um, when an outside agency teams up with, you know, whether it's a production house or uh, whoever's releasing the film, there there's a disconnect because there's no really there's no real passion for the project it's all about what can they turn over as far as results right so if i'm xyz publish public you know publicist firm and you know a big studio says you know this movie is coming out in six months we really need to get the buzz going you know they may or may not watch the movie. You, you know, they might put together like a packet of like quotes from other people they've seen on social media to a tr- and they try to kind of like follow the water where where does the you know the horse lands at to get water. So if they see, you know, let's say Ron at this publication um reviews it they'll try to like follow it like who's the rival of that publication who has the same type of uh outreach so it's not like you know they're actually consuming what they're actually selling so they can pick apart things that are in the film or a tv show where they can like specialize uh, a pitch so they can have a broader outreach 
and and also PR people tend to like recycle their sources a lot you know if they cover film you know whoever they cover um um they keep pitching them everything they have essentially right they don't really say okay well I'm doing this film on you know animals so let me go ahead and build an animal uh friendly you know pet journalist list right so you know that's that's just just what it is so um I think because of that disconnect and a lot of the biggest buzz comes from these more niche smaller media platform because those are the ones that are actually engaged with the social media following not the big publications and I think a lot of PR um, agents they they end up missing that and they end up missing when why and when these vid, these films go viral on social media for memes because they're not in tune to what that project is and what's being said and who and who is actually saying it that's a really good point is there's a disconnect because there is no, like they're watching to see what you say about their film, but, or, you know, when you bad mouth, you know, somebody, you know, then suddenly you're on the radar, but, you know, when you're sort of looking for, for connections and resources, for some reason, it's just, it's out of the hands of the people. So um, anyone else have any other solutions? How things can be fixed? How the industry can improve for critics, especially uh, film critics of color? I have a big one, which, you know, a lot of these big publications, they don't allow their reviews to go out of their staff. And I don't know, because I've never been staffed in any of the big publications I just know I've pitched a couple of places and they're like hey that is going to be reviewed by someone on our team but if you wanted to pitch an interview which is great I I do appreciate the editors that give alternatives because of there being some kind of whatever involved however I'm, I'm not going to lie uh, you know a movie uh, let's take two movies that came out last year Zola and Passing the last thing I want to hear about is a 50 plus year old white man's point of view on either of those films. And so if your only people on staff are in that demographic, or basically you don't have a black woman that is able to cover those films, this might be a good opportunity to start branching out into bringing in some of that diverse voice. Because like, even me, I'm not a black woman. I enjoyed both of those films. I had a lot of thoughts about them and I didn't review them because that's not my place. I talked about it with friends. I talked about it with other people, but that's not my place. I didn't go out of my way to pitch about those two. And I think there's this understanding in like our circle, right? That there's just a certain respect that we have as we're trying to break in to be like, there are certain point of views on certain films that are very important and we need to uplift those. So if there was a way that publications could start doing that as well with films that like, even if you hadn't seen Passing, that's one that I can be like, you don't have to see it to know that you probably shouldn't have a white man review it. Um, you know, so that would be my hope is that some of these publications can start, start breaking out of the staff uh, thing that they have right now because again like I just I think that's where a lot of this is just not being covered um, by these by these big publications that are still kind of upheld by publicists and by studios um, when we the people who do want to write about these films and who's as Val mentioned earlier other people want to hear what we have to say about these films would be would matter more than than some of these guys that are already established in the industry. I kind of wanted to say something going off of what um, Erica and Shay said. And like, for me, I think my, my, one of my things that makes me unique um, is that, as I've mentioned, I'm an immigrant and I'm a black woman living in North America. I'm from a Caribbean country. And I, one of the things that I try not to do, as Shay has said, is pigeonhole myself into covering strictly black films or films strictly about black women. And I do cover those kind of films because it's important to me as a black woman to cover films and projects because I do, I like to discuss like small short films and independent cinema. Um, but also I, I like to like, I love action films. 
I love Asian films. I love films from all across Asia. That's, I, I think, one of my, my niche. And I, live, and I love talking about these films. And it's very hard to get access <laughs> to these kind of products because they, but, but publicists will give access to films like Drive My Car to a white man, <laughs> but they won't give an interview to me. Like I, I pitched interviews for, for, for Drive My Car. Drink, Drink Tiff was told, oh, they're not offering interviews of directors doing no interviews, point blank. That's what I was told. Come, temp, come to see after Tiff. Get what did I see? Interview for Drive My Car being given to a white journalist. I'm like, I thought they weren't doing any interviews for Drive My Car. And this is something that I see happens constantly. And I find the only, I got to give it up for, well, go USA, because like they're, they're a distribution company for um, especially particular Asian films in North America. And like I got to give it up to the publicists there. Like they reach out to me because they know that I do have a passion for action films and films from Asia. And so they reach out to me because like, as the publicist has said, like they don't get to see black women and even like Asian people, because I know Nguyen uh, works with them occasionally that apart, unless they give access to people like us, other, the, the, like, the studios themselves aren't gonna give it to publicists and that's, a, um, not to publicists, sorry, to journalists. And that's the problem too, because it's the studio also that determines who gets access. So if the publicists also don't take it upon themselves to say, I'm going to reach out to these people from marginalized communities and gives you access, like we are going to be shut out completely. And I think it's even more, to me, even more egregious during a film festival. And I, that's why I, I keep mentioning TIFF and like Sundance and South by Southwest and all these things, because like when I think a film festival in particular is when people from marginalized communities should be given more access because once the films leave the, the festival circuit, and they start doing promotions for uh, for release, theatrical release. It's even harder because that's when a lot of the staff writers for these um, outlets get more access. So festival festival circuit is when we can really get access, and that's the unless we get access, then we're shut up completely. I can say if it wasn't for the African American Film Critics Association, since this pandemic started, I would not have had like ninety percent of the coverage that I've had for the last two years going on. Most of the interviews I've gotten has been because of Africa. Like they give me, I get access through round tables or I reach out through the publicists from those um, interviews and I get more access. If it wasn't for that, 90% of the stuff that I've done for the past years would not have happened because publicists or studios aren't giving me access. And it can be, like Ashley said, it's frustrating and it's disheartening. And there are moments where you're like, is this job worth it? Like, you know, because like, you want to do it and you love talking about film. And as you said, Val, people do want to hear our perspectives. But if we keep getting shut out of the dark, like shut out, you're, you're just thinking, why am I struggling? Why am I fighting so hard? But then for me, it's like, I can't give up because if we give up, they eventually win. And then there's going to be no one who looks like us, who has our backgrounds, who have our experiences talking about these films, talking about the industry. And you can't have change without some kind of like pushback. And that's I see us like critics like us as and journalists like us doing pushback. I like to, this is I my own little, I call my own little revolution, as you will, like, this is the way I'm doing it. And like, especially like for my podcast, I love talking to independent filmmakers because a lot of independent filmmakers, again, they also get shut out because like the public, like they don't get to talk to like journalists from big outlets, right? So many of these small short film directors don't get any kind of like marketability or any kind of promotion for their films, unless someone likes me reaches out to them and agrees to do a, an interview with them. So like it's it's kind of like a, it's kind of like this industry is very myopic in its scope where you focus only on big names for big films from big production studios and everybody else as new I was like I'm saying like a little fish in a pond this gigantic big pond and you're you're trying to swim upstream. Yeah, and one thing that I actually do want to mention is that I think this has been a choice that I've had to kind of balance. And I'm sure this has been a choice that, as you said, Carolyn, you've had to balance and Shay, you've also had to figure out how to balance. And it's of do I want to pigeonhole myself into like the sector that like, oh, most people think like, that's what I, that's what you are. So you should stick to like, for me instance, like covering just Latino films. And I love Latino films, but I've had to make that choice of like, do I want to cover solely Latino films and maybe progress a little faster than at, other people or do I want to try to keep my coverage broad and maybe if I don't progress that fast that's fine but at least I still get to have broad coverage and be able to not pigeonhole myself and not be known as like oh the Latino guy and I will say there are a ton of incredible journalists who I think have managed to find that balance 
from from marginalized communities and like succeeded to like incredible amounts but as someone who's like just started to break in over the past couple of years that's definitely been something that I've had to balance as well um but another thing that I do want to mention is on that note about festivals kind of being one of those places that maybe people who haven't fully broken in or who aren't staffed by major trades do have an advantage is that Again, one of the things that I think helped me the most in my early days was actually the TIFF Media Inclusion Initiative um, and the Sundance Press Inclusion Initiative, um, where they kind of select like, I think 40 to 50 marginalized voices who aren't maybe that established compared to other people and give them all these resources and all these opportunities. And those moments, I'd actually say, those festivals have been the moments where I'd say I've progressed the most. And hopefully some of you guys can agree. but I would do to end on a positive note, I do want to thank those festivals for providing those opportunities because without those, I, I have no idea where I would be today. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I do. I, I, I do agree with uh, you all as well. And uh, yeah, I think this is going to sound horrible, but uh, Carolyn, you're right. I'm actually like thanking the pandemic for providing me more access than usual. Sometimes sometimes the access that I gained during that, it was so incredible that I could, that I, I actually thought that I was dreaming. So it's just, it's just, it's just been very strange about how, you know, uh, outlets and sometimes PR publications as well, they would do really like, huge push on uh, di- uh, messages of diversity and branching out and all that sort of stuff, but then they never follow up on that. And, you know, and regarding an original uh, uh, solution that I would propose, it's just that maybe, you know, think of us beyond the months that are dedicated to us as well. Because as Shea says, as Diego says, as Carolyn says, and Erica says as well, you know, we can we can absolutely cover things beyond our own, uh, let's just say check boxes, because that's how, that's how they see us. Um, because uh, when when they get to think of us beyond the months that are dedicated to us, they will realize that you know they can get the same quality. Uh, they can get the high quality writing with a whole lot of quantity. That's the very thing that they wanted at the same time as well. So, you know, like I, I absolutely can talk about 1917 as well as Parasite, for example. And of course, when I pitch something for AAPI Heritage Month, which is in May, please consider me. I got to say like... <clears throat> When I was a freelancer, my email would be blowing up during Black History Month. Oh my God. It was like, yo, you want to make some money? It's Black History Month. Let me go. I'm about to go exploit being Black so I can make some money. And, you know, it feels good at the time because you're able to pay your bills. But when you look back on it, you're like, dang, it's like, you know, I'm not really being used for my, for the full range of my perspective. I'm just used, uh, which is, which is great too, because it's like, it's twofold, right? Because it's like, we want to be reached out to and to be able to connect with things that we identify with, like what you was talking about when, when you wanted to speak to that Vietnamese actress. But also it's important for people to know that we have a broader spectrum of ideas um, and are into various different types of films. And so it, it, it need, we, the industry has to provide more than one thing, but I'm glad Diego brought that up about um, Sundance and, and South by Southwest and TIFF and, you know, the different film festivals that do help out marginalized critics and give them um, all access passes so that they can see whatever they want and they don't have to go through the, the, the full process because they have access to things. And that makes it easier to uh, disseminate information quicker and be one of the first people to talk about uh, certain things. And, and, you know, I realized how important that was when I went to Cannes and saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I was like one of the few, you know, people who was talking about it extremely early in the, in the, in the media campaign. And that really helped sort of boister my career a lot. Um, and, you know, I, you know, this is not like a, 
bashing studios or bashing publicist session, um, you know, people do their jobs and they do the best that they think that they can do with, you know, for their clients, for their films or whatever. What is being asked on this episode is to open open the space a little bit and allow others to take part in it. This also isn't a, oh, you know, I hate white men session. This is not that either. Uh, so many of them have shaped the business and made it, you know, what it is today. Again, what people are asking for is the opportunity to get on the same level and have the same access while offering a different perspective, um, you know, when it comes to film and television. So we're gonna wrap it up, but what I want everybody to do is I want you to tell people where they can find you on social media if they want to follow you. Just give them your Twitter, your Instagram, or whatever you choose, um, if you choose to give them that. and. Uh, then we'll wrap it up. So yeah, I'm the Diego Andaluz, and that's A-N-D-A-L-U-Z on Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, and you can find all of my ramblings, all of my reactions, and links to all my work there. Um, and I, I've been lucky enough to build a pretty good following across all those platforms. But again, you can also find my work on the Global Film Show. I'm currently hosting weekly Twitter Spaces. Um, as a second season of that live show, you can find a lot of my work on discussing the film. I do a lot of awards prediction, awards coverage on there. And again, you can find most of my freelance work on, on through my social media. And because I'll always be posting links there and sharing all my recent work and accomplishments. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'll go next. So uh, again, my name is Shay Vassar. I'm a writer, want to be comic, all the fun things. Uh, I am on all the social media as at just... J-U-S-T, and then my name, Shay, S-H-E-A-V-A-S-S-A-R. So just Shay Vassar. Thanks again, Val, by the way. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Carrie CNH12, that's C-A-R-R-I-E-C-N-H-1-2. I have three podcasts. <laughs> um, the first is, so here's what happened podcast that is co-hosted by myself and my friend, Anisha Campbell, where we get together and talk about films, TVs, manga, comic books and books and dramas. I love talking about dramas. And I also um, have Beyond the Romance. That's my Asian drama and film podcast where I talk about Korean, Japanese, Chinese, Taiwanese, Thai um, dramas and films. Yes, I do love Asian content, as I've mentioned. Um, the two of those are web hosted on butwhythepodcast.com. You can find um, them on butwhythepodcast.com as well as on Spotify, Acast, and SoundCloud. I also have Karen and Talks, which is a, what I call a sub-podcast. Also, here's what happened. And that's what I use you when I'm doing film coverage for film festivals. I interview film creatives and occasionally critics like you guys to, um, to talk about their films, their art, and the craft of, the, of filmmaking and the film industry. And I have a YouTube channel where you can find my interviews for Karen and Talks, Beyond the Romance, as well as for the AFCA virtual roundtables. And you can find that under my name, that's C-R-O-L-Y-N. H-I-N-D-S on YouTube. And um, I think that's it. Yeah, I do a lot of stuff. <laughs> All right, I'm Erica. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under the same name, Fabulize Mag, F-A-B-U-L-I-Z-E-M-A-G. I'm also launching a podcast called Nerd Herbs and Words, where it's a 420 friendly podcast where we talk about books, comics, graphic novels, and everything else in between. And um, thank you, Val, for the opportunity to talk with you and y'all. Y'all are such experts, and I hope to become a better film critic as y'all are one day. <laughs> All right. Well, last but not least, it's me, uh, Nguyen Le. You can find me on Twitter at NLE318. And you can also find me on Facebook at Nguyen.Le.334. Yes, it's very sad. I do remember my, uh, you know, the, the, the whatever it is to get to my Facebook. So yeah, I, I do have a lot of time on my hands. Uh, anyway, yeah, so when you add me there, you can find me 
talking a whole lot of, of things about uh, films and maybe uh, Vietnamese cinema, uh, if you're interested, and maybe a thing or two about uh, the need for more Vietnamese subtitles in films as well, because I do do translation work on the side. So yeah, and this has been a tremendous space. And, you know, just to be just to be around with you guys is, you know, make me glow kind of deal. I hope that's not too creepy sounding, but yeah, you know what I mean. I love you all. Uh, I'm Valerie Complex. You know, you can find me Valerie Complex at Twitter, all one word and Valerie underscore complex on Instagram. And I want to say thank you to everyone who uh, shared their stories. You were open, honest, and I really appreciate the things that you had to say. And I want to give a shout out to Deadline because Deadline is really trying to do the work. There are a couple of people of color there and they're adding more as we speak. Um, and it's one of the, the outlets that's actively looking for diverse voices and has been open about me being vocal about the things that I want to say and do. And I got to give it up to, to them. And uh, thank you all again for, for coming and thank you all for listening to the Deadlines uh, Scene to Scene podcast. And I hope you can subscribe and like and share and let everybody know uh, that the Scene to Scene podcast is here to stay. Thank you very much. And until next time.